Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Sobral. The contribution of non-professional sport to local communities has been widely discussed in Sport Management Review and on this podcast. But one area that hasn't received as much attention is how commercial sport organizations can help local communities. And so that's the topic for this episode. And joining us to discuss this is a very special guest. He's published on a wide range of topics, including event leveraging, sustainability, and of course, surfing. And he's received thousands of citations in doing so. He's associate professor at Bond University, as well as being one of my PhD supervisors. It's Danny O'Brien. Welcome, Danny. Nice to be here, mate. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. And for once, this is fascinating for me because usually we're talking about my research when we talk. So now we're talking about yours and I've got the big red pen out and I'm going to go through it thoroughly. Ah. (laughs) It's great to have you on to talk about your research as well. Danny recently published Commercial Sport Organizations and Community Capacity Building, a case study of two surf parks. So Danny, as I mentioned before, sports impact on a community is widely discussed, widely researched. How did this study help our understanding of the area? This particular area, I've couched it and I've written in the past in the area of uh, sport for development. So it's an area that I'm deeply interested in. A few people have over the years, Fred Coulter, for example, argued the need, he used the word de-reify the rhetoric of sport for development. So he, he was saying that we need to sort of take it less so from NGOs who are not from local communities, who are sort of coming in from the outside, conducting interventions and then leaving the, the community. And they do great work. That's where most of the research has been on these organisations that come in, do the intervention and then make whatever change they need to or attempt to change whatever they need to change and then leave. So this was about trying to look more at local community-based interventions and commercial sport organisations, by their very nature, their, their success in most cases has to be tied to their local community. So I thought it was interesting that hadn't been looked at. That's sort of where I came at this from. And meanwhile, we've got this whole movement across the world, this move towards lifestyle sports. So lifestyle sports are a term that um, Belinda Wheaton, among others, have used around sports like skateboarding, climbing, surfing being one of those. We've seen these sports like speed climbing and surfing most recently uh, introduced into the Olympic movement. So I thought that was a, a pretty interesting uh, jumping off point for this research. So to, uh, to look at how these sports and even in a commercial setting can help contribute to uh, building community and sport for development. Yeah, I think I need to include more sports in my lifestyle, but uh, I can see where <laughs> you've brought those two things together there. Um, and of course, for those that know you, surfing is a massive part of your life and your lifestyle uh for those that don't it is so this is based of course in in surf parks did you come up with this idea while you were surfing and you and you brought all these ideas together i, I don't know what happens what goes through your mind when you're surfing <laughs> as little as possible ideally <laughs> that's part of the idea of it but uh no, I've, I've always been a surfer. You know, watching this emergence of artificial wave technology has been fascinating. And that, that technology, you know, it's sort of always been a, 
I was going to use the word pipe dream, but <laughs> um, it, it's kind of always been a fantasy of, of surfers. You know, imagine being able to create your own waves. Well, all of a sudden it actually is possible. So this artificial wave technology is, has emerged and it's been commercialized in the form of surf pipes. So from a sport perspective, it fascinated me. From a research perspective, Van Bottenberg and, and Salon, they looked at this movement that they called the indoorization of outdoor sports. So they looked at, you know, sports like climbing and skydiving and kayaking and, and so on, where they're being offered for commercial consumption in these purpose-built artificial facilities. So that's sort of how I came to, to look at this. And, and then putting my sport for development hat on and my background in the research, some of the research I've published in the past around sustainable surf tourism, that sort of combined interest to re resulted in me uh, approaching this research from this perspective. I remember when you did your keynote speech, you spoke about doing research on things you, you love. So I, I could see that, that you were doing that as well, taking your own advice on board. As you mentioned, you, you used the support for development framework, but also community capacity. Why were these useful frameworks to use when you were looking and doing this study? The community capacity perspective, I, I think is fascinating. So community capacity is a community's ability to define, evaluate, analyze, and act on concerns of importance. Community capacity building is how we strengthen the capabilities of a community to actually recognize its own problems and solve its own problems. So it's about empowerment. Michael Edwards, back in 2015, developed this seven-part framework, and he, and he noted that there was a lack of research around sport as a mechanism for building capacity in communities. So this seven-part framework, he proposed this as a way to address this gap. And that framework was built on a whole plethora of research that came before in community capacity building. So Michael didn't invent this, but he coalesced a lot of earlier research to develop this model. And then Michael, along with Gareth Jones and, and a few other colleagues in 2018, published some research around applying that model in the context of community sport organisations. That was great, but it was one community sport organisation and it didn't really mention at all commercial sector sport organisations. So to me, it seemed like the picture wasn't completely clear. Obviously, we need to do more work around community sport organisations, but commercial sport organisations, they're a really increasing part of the industry. A lot of innovation comes from commercial sector stakeholders and that drives change across the sector to me there was a big a big part of the jigsaw was missing and meanwhile one of the things that the 2018 piece found was that it supported a lot of earlier research in commercial sport organizations that you know these organizations typically have capacity deficiencies in areas like strategic management so how do we get around that well we look at our partnership formation. One of the things that they found was that community sport organisations, where they try to form partnerships, they quite often are deficient in that skill itself. So, you know, that becomes a real problem in building further capacity if you haven't got that capacity in the beginning. What I found in this research, commercial sport organisations can really help out with. And one of the things that Fred Coulter said that resonates here as well is that Sport for development, it's not just about sport participation. It's, a, it's what he called sport plus. We bring certain capacities and opportunities through sport. That's where the plus comes in, those opportunities. There's sport, but then what else do we bring? And to do this research, 
you use the case study of two sport parks. Now I'm going to uh, apologize to all the Welsh listeners, including Gareth Bale, who I know listens to this. Um, <laughs> Dolgarog, I hope, in Wales, and Bristol in, in England. Daddy, when we think about surfing, we don't think yeah. about these places. Why on earth did you go there? <laughs> well, it, it is a global sport, Vitor, believe it or not. Yeah, it is interesting. The UK, and I'm not sure why, but for some reason, the UK is leading the world in surf park development. Dolgarog, and apologies to Welsh speakers, but I, I do think that is how it's pronounced. In Dogarog, which is in the Snowdonia part of Wales, the, this area is geographically beautiful. And it's also home to the world's very first commercial surf park. So the region's known for its natural beauty, is known for its whitewater rafting, its climbing, trekking, etc. It's a dark sky um, mecca. So people go there for astronomy and astrophotography and so on. So this place is, is known for it, for nature. So all of a sudden, you've got this surf park going in there. That's a man-made facility. It, it's kind of odd in that respect. However, it complements the existing adventure tourism offerings in, in the region. Bristol was a, a bit of a different case in that Nick Hounsfield, the, the guy who developed the Wave Bristol, it's called, he comes from a health sciences background and he himself is, a, is an osteopath. So he came at the surf park idea from the, the perspective of uh, healthy lifestyle behaviours. He built the surf park just out of Bristol, and Bristol has a population of about 500,000. Dolgarog has a population of about 500. So very different location choices there. But where he built it is very close to um, what was described to me as a fairly deprived part of, of Bristol. These were the first two commercial surf parks in the world. It, it makes sense that you picked them too, because you've got these two different areas. And to, to actually do the research, you, you conducted 25 semi-structured interviews, uh, three with key gatekeepers, which I think is interesting. Why was yeah. that important to, to get to the gatekeepers? And also you added data from, from media reports. How did this all come together for you? I, I mentioned earlier that there were five or six different technology providers in the space. The very first company in the space and the current market leader is a company called WaveGarden. These guys have built this company. They're all surfers. And that's important because uh, a lot of this comes back to values. They have the development of surfing as a sport at, as part of one of their core values. But obviously, this is also a commercial venture. So they're very commercially oriented as well. WaveGarden, they don't just supply the technology. They've developed these water treatment systems. They've expanded business development services and they provide their clients so the developers of the surf parks in Dolgarog, Bristol and elsewhere in the world, they get this ongoing service, uh, you know, this experience from project concept and advice on that right through to their opening um, and beyond the upkeep of the, the technology and, and so on. They were my three initial gatekeepers and I, I interviewed them at their HQ in San Sebastian in Spain, which is an experience in itself, actually getting there. Um, nearly killing myself on Spanish roads, driving on the wrong side of the road and trying to read road signs and directions in Basque and Spanish. Because it's so competitive in this space, the intellectual property of the technology is very closely guarded. So their research and development facilities, you know, in this secluded valley, I was given coordinates, not an address as such. I was given map coordinates. Was he and stroking a cat when you arrived? Layer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I did pass some wildlife on the way. It was it was really fascinating, really interesting space. 
But then they directed me to Andy Adensko, who was the owner and developer of Adventure Park Snowdonia. So it was really helpful having those guys open those doors for me. And then, uh, you know, I sort of snowballed it from there. Because surfers being surfers and media being a huge part of the surfing industry, everyone's so excited. Like Kelly Slater brought his beast, his own developed uh, surfing technology online, and it, it exploded the internet. All surfers were talking about it. So there's been a lot of press around artificial wave technology. So there was a lot of surf media around the opening up of uh, Snowdonia and, and Bristol and Melbourne that, that followed. So the media provided a really neat counterpoint for me to get the background on a lot of uh, what has happened. To analyze the data, you, you took the Sherlock Holmes deductive approach using the, the Edwards model for community capacity building. That must have made it a bit easier to go through and, and collate and, and yeah. analyze the interview material well, it, and the media reports. It just provided a really neat anchor point. And I really went into, into data collection expecting that just to be a jumping off point. I didn't expect the data to fit as neatly as it ultimately did. I, I expected the Edwards model was just a, a start and then I'd be building an entirely different model based on commercial sport organisations and how they went about community capacity building. But what I actually found was that the, the model just provided this perfect heuristic to explain how each surf park was going about building this sustainable business model in, in their respective communities. What they were describing to me was exactly community capacity building. They actually had a, a sport for development philosophy, and that's what they were building their business on, right from the guys at Wave Garden through to the practitioners on, on the ground. And they were going about it in different ways. And that's also what I found interesting. So what all of that said to me was that this model is, is super robust. And we'll get onto that in, in a second. But, but first, just based on, on this uh, analysis, what were the results? What were the key findings? Well, the, the first one was, uh, and the most obvious ones, that uh, commercial sport organisations can indeed be valuable contributors to sport-based community capacity building. Uh, as I touched on this earlier, various researchers have you know, lamented and spoken about capacity deficiencies in sport for development initiatives, especially in terms of things like business acumen, lacking in strategic planning abilities and so on. What I found in this study was that commercial sport actors can actually partner with those organisations and make address these capacity deficiencies and in that way contribute to sport for development initiatives. They created access to reliable supplies of human resources and skills, which again is a, a deficit in sport for development. They helped and provided and buttressed the work of volunteers, provided volunteering opportunities just help fill these capacity gaps. It also showed that there's a link between organisational capacity building and community capacity building. People like Alison Doherty in the past have done work around organisational capacity building. Community sport organisations traditionally have trouble with that. It's been, it's been demonstrated. This showed that there is a link where organisations and sport organisations can develop organisational capacity that then helps them contribute to community as well. So this research showed that link and it showed how commercial sport organisations can help in remedying some of those uh, capacity deficiencies. Another finding that really builds on those first two is what I spoke about before, that just that robustness of Edward's framework was pretty clearly demonstrated. But ultimately, I guess what it demonstrated is that 
you know, we talk about sports public value and uh, it's increasingly tied to unmet community needs, sustainable social impacts. What this all suggests is that policymakers in sport, researchers in sport, we, we can't continue to consider sport and its ability to build community capacity purely from public and third sector perspectives. We've got to start bringing in and finding ways to partner with and bring in the commercial actors in our field. And it's got to go beyond going in, implementing a program, having a commercial sponsor and then pulling out. It's, it's got to look at ways that we can anchor these benefits in the community. Considering that, more broadly, theoretically, how did this advance our understanding of the area? Well, I guess it really um, demonstrated that this is a robust model. Community capacity building is a is a, a robust approach to take in sport for development, but it also really showed the importance of partnerships and specifically partnerships among commercial, public, and third sector actors and how they complement each other and that mutual organisational capacity building among those partners can then facilitate these deeper, richer, more diverse intercommunity ties. And that was one of the things that Jones and Edwards and colleagues found in the commercial sport sector is that community sports ability to develop intercommunity ties is, is not that great. Where commercial sport actors can come in is in helping facilitate that because they can cut across different community groups and different socioeconomic groups. There's the potential utility of lifestyle sports in sport for development. Most sport for development interventions have relied upon, you know, more accessible sports like um, football, basketball, and so on. This looked at sport for development in that different context. And most of those sport for development studies have been done in, you know, not unnecessarily in remote corners of developing countries, but we know that developed countries and inner city areas also have crippling social problems. You know, childhood obesity, unemployment, unhealthy lifestyle behaviours, criminal activity and, and so on. Sport can help remedy some of those problems. You know, effective community capacity building through sport. You know, we need to start thinking about aligning more with less traditional partners. Some of those partners might not necessarily be considered part of the recognised traditional sport system. And more unorganised sport, like I assume a lot of people uh, were were taking part in this in an unorganised way. It's not all about competition either. A lot of people participate in sport just purely for the fun of it, for the passion, for the achievement, for the sense of self-fulfilment. You know, we saw in Dolgarog in particular where they they created alongside the surf park a community sport organisation that wouldn't have existed without the resource of the surf park. Through that community sport board riders club, they actually trained kids. Kids got involved in surfing where they never would have before. They learned how to swim. They learned how to surf. They became lifeguards. They became surf instructors. They learned how to deal with customers. So they learned front office management, dealing with stakeholders. So there was all of these linkages and they partnered with vocational training organizations and with you know organizations like surfing great britain and actually you know develop these skills develop these partnerships that they could pick up and take elsewhere if they wanted to or stay and contribute to the local community considering that and everything you've done in this research for community leaders for people working in this area but also for even for, for commercial sport managers what advice would you give them when they're thinking about how can we use commercial sport in particular for community capacity? All of this research was obviously done pre-COVID. 
we can't help reflecting on the impact of COVID on the economic environment, sport environment. What COVID has brought out is that it's increasingly obvious that we need to be strategic in our partnership formation. So that is borne out in this research. Commercial sport, they are dependent on local communities. Local communities, in turn, are dependent on organisations to supply these services that build the richness of the community. Sport's a key part of that. So there is that sort of dual dependency relationship. From the commercial sport organisation's point of view, they're dependent on local communities from the outset for access to resources like the land that they develop. And in the case of Dogorog, for example, they redeveloped contaminated land, and that was part of their contribution uh, right from the outset. But then there's building approvals, there's the various permissions, etc. Later, they rely on the local community for labour, for physical resources like food and beverage, maintenance, security, etc. And one of the things that we've learned from COVID is that shorter supply chains actually increase certainty because those shorter supply chains are less susceptible to lockdowns and border closures and, and so on. And not to mention, they actually support the local community. That's what these guys are all about. The local community, you know, represents that shorter supply chain in terms of all of those things that we've talked about, but also a local customer base. And, you know, from that community perspective, what the study showed was that where CSOs, community sport organisations, lack in areas like strategic planning, the commercial sport organisations can help them out through these strategic partnerships because they've got that strategic savvy in many cases. They want to contribute back to the community and anchor themselves in the community. So community sport organisations, through being quite savvy in their partnership formation, can leverage this business acumen that you don't always get among a, a group of well-meaning part-time volunteers. So they can, uh, you know, in the case of this research, we saw these surf parks. They're not going to be built in remote corners of developing countries. They're built in developed areas where there is a market for them. So these are for-profit enterprises. So not everyone can afford to go to a surf park. What these guys found as a way of contributing in that respect is providing assistance and opportunity through things like bursary programs, education and vocational programs, and events that are targeted and for and supporting these at-risk communities like people with disabilities, um, at-risk youth, veterans groups, CALD groups, et cetera. So the study showed that commercial sport organisations really can contribute to community building by helping communities recognise and address their own problems, specifically in the sport of surfing, getting back to the actual sport. There's this ongoing debate in the sport about the authenticity of surf parks and the surfing experience they provide. You know, people saying, oh, it's not cool, it's not real, it's not real surfing. It was interesting that all of the respondents from the gatekeepers right through, they all said surf parks, and they're not about replacing traditional surfing, not about replacing the ocean environment. It's simply a supplement to it. It's about complementing that environment, providing these new and unique experience for beginners through to experienced professional surfers you know olympic surfers are using them for training but they also use them to raise awareness around coastal ecology issues it's a really strong message in both of the uh, surf parks and the social and, and environmental issues that not only threaten surfing as a sport but all of us now i can't go without asking because i'm so used to getting your feedback how did i do any any changes well, necessary no i think you i think you're pretty good there it was great chatting to you, Danny, finally about something you've done rather than something I've done and, and really fascinating research. And uh, I think a lot of people will be uh, really interested in this topic. 
Thank you, Vitor, and um, thanks to uh, Gareth and Michael and their colleagues too for the uh, the jumping off point that they provided for me. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks, Vitor. And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. Head to the Sport Management Review website to check out all the latest research that's being published, including the article discussed in this episode, Commercial Sport Organizations and Community Capacity Building, a case study of two surf parks. That's it for this episode, but of course, there are many more you can listen to on your favorite podcast player. And if you could follow the podcast and give us a five-star rating, that'd be great too. Until next time, it's bye for now.